Well, good morning, New Hope. Great to be with you this morning. We're going to be talking about marriage, and I want to uh, make a couple disclaimers about, uh, about that up front. Uh, first is that uh, Gene and I have been married for uh, not quite 42 years. You thought I wouldn't remember, didn't you? Not quite 42 years, but uh, we were married when we were 19. Actually, I was not much bigger than the little guy on the cake at the time. You have no idea how much mileage I've gotten out of that joke over the years. But I, I, say, I say all that not to say that uh, we have it down because we're still a work in progress as far as our marriage goes and that's why we're talking about it this morning. Uh, because it is a life's work and uh, God uses marriage in our lives to, to uh, it's one of the tools he uses for spiritual formation, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And he uses our partner to do that. That's why we find our partners so aggravating sometimes is because God's using them to mold us and to shape us into the image of Christ. And uh, a couple other things. Uh, number one, although we'll be talking about marriage, our purpose this morning is not to disparage anyone who's single. We all have been or will be single at some point in our lives. And uh, God uses singles powerfully, as we see in Scripture, uh, in the body of Christ and in this world. So... Uh, this is not to disparage those who happen to be single at this point in life. And the third thing I, I want to say is, is uh, because I'm conscious of the fact that a number of you have been through painful divorces. You've been through that ordeal of a divorce. And um, I, I want to minister grace this morning and not condemnation. So uh, if you have been uh, through that, I, I just want to say that the, this morning is about Grace And regardless, I don't know what happened in your situation, but uh, I do know that uh, God's grace uh, reaches you no matter where you are. And, and whatever uh, role you had in that, God's grace covers that. If you are a child of God, if you belong to Jesus Christ and he's declared you not guilty as a, on the basis of his sacrifice that he made for you, then your sins are forgiven. And... Uh, and all that is, is under grace and forgotten as far as God's concerned. So, uh, although, although the, the message this morning is about, we'll be talking about uh, divorce and, and marriage and so on, uh, it is intended to be a message of grace and not condemnation if you find yourself in that situation. And I'd like to just ask God to, uh, to superintend uh, what happens during this message this morning. So let's just go to him in prayer briefly. Father, we thank you for this time together, and I thank you for these folks and their desire to know you. And I, and I would ask that this morning, our brother Dallas Willard has said that the most important thing that happens to a message is between the time it leaves the pastor's mouth and the time it reaches the hearer's ears, what the Holy Spirit does to it in that, in that time frame. And I pray that your Holy Spirit be living and active in, in this message this morning, that you'd impress it on our hearts and that you'd touch everyone in the unique way that you have in mind for them to be changed and that you'd use it to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ in our marriage relationships. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought uh, uh, marriage has got kind of, kind of a bad rap in our culture right now, and uh, there are a number of people who are openly questioning the viability of marriage as an institution, whether we ought to pay attention to it anymore or not. I think some of that's based on misinformation. So I thought uh, a good way to start off this morning would be to have a little kind of a pop quiz on, uh, on, on issues related to marriage in, in our culture right now. Because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. 
And so we've got a little eight-item true-false quiz that I'm going to ask you to participate in, and uh, you can grade your own papers and uh, be on your honor. You have the questions in there. You don't yet have the answers, so you may want to scribble those next to the questions. Uh, first item, the percentage of people getting married is on the decline. True or false? Uh, no, that's actually true. Uh, that's actually true. The percentage of people getting married is on the decline. The, act, the annual number of marriages per 1,000 people has actually declined by about 50% over the past 40 years. And some of that has to do with uh, young people deferring marriages until later in their 20s. And some of it has to do with the fact that some folks are, are living together before or instead of marriage. And, uh, and also, I, I think sometimes it's, uh, some of it is because in our culture, uh, we've become a little cynical about marriage, or our culture has become cynical about marriage anyway. And uh, it's got kind of a bad rap. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions about it. Number two, the percentage of people living together before marriage or instead of marriage, that is what's called cohabitation, is, has increased. True or false? It is true. In fact, in 1960, it was virtually non-existent. It, if it occurred, people didn't talk about it, certainly. And, uh, and in the past 50 years, uh, it's increased to the place where uh, now uh, more than half of all people live together before they get married, if, if they get married. So it's, in, it's increased radically and, and become commonplace in our, in our culture. Number three, living together before marriage is an effective way to improve your chances of choosing a good marriage partner and ensuring that a marriage would last. True or false? You, you seem pretty convinced about that. And, and yet in, in our culture, it's, seen, uh, it's conventional wisdom that it's seen, you know, you test drive a car, you test drive a relationship, right? It all seems to make sense. But, but you're correct. It, that is false. Actually, uh, cohabitation before marriage significantly increases the probability that, number one, the couple will never marry. Number two, that if they marry, that the marriage will fail. And, and the longer that they live together before they are married, the, the higher the probability that that marriage will fail and the more quickly that it will fail. Number four, approximately half of all marriages end in divorce. True or false? That's true. That's right, about 45% of all marriages end in divorce, but the number of divorces has actually started to tail off since the high point in the mid-1980s. So it's declined a little bit over the past decade or so. Number five, all marriages have an equal probability of ending in divorce. True or false? False. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got a good sense for this. The greatest majority of divorces actually happen to those who, number one, marry before age 18, or 19 in my case, have dropped out of high school, number two, or, or number three, have, have a baby before they get married. Uh, those are the highest percentages. Among those who have some education, a decent income, come from an intact family, hold some religious values, and, and marry after 25 years without having a baby first, the, the odds of divorce are very low. The probabilities are low. Uh, here's, here's one that trips a lot of people up. Christians are as likely as non-Christians to be divorced. True or false? True. And, and that's, that's why I bring it up, because that's a, a major misconception right now. It's been repeated and accepted as truth. It's actually false. And uh, it's based on some bad research, but it's been research, repeated so many times that we think it, it's true. The research that was done, uh, actually, uh, the surveyors approached people and, and said, 
do you consider yourself a Christian? And they said yes, and so they proceeded with the rest of the survey. And that's how those, those findings were, uh, that's how they came about. And, and actually, some better research has been done where uh, the uh, researchers actually looked at people's behaviors. Because about 80% of the people in this country say would identify themselves as Christians. But they, what they mean by that is all over the map. And so if you actually look at behaviors that would lead you to believe that a person is a follower of Jesus Christ, that is, uh, do they with their spouse attend church on a regular basis? Do they crack a Bible once in a while? Do they read the Bible? Do they engage in prayer? And are they connected into a fellowship? Uh, in other words, do they have relationships in a, in a body of Christ with, with, other, uh, uh, with other believers? And if those things are true, then the probability of a divorce drops down to the, the low single digits. So, it, so it's not true. Actually, uh, Christians, uh, practicing Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, have a much, much lower uh, probability of divorce than, than do non-believers or not yet believers. Uh, here are a couple more for you. Single people are better off financially than married people. True or false? <laughs> yeah. I see all these single guys driving around in Corvettes and whatnot. Wait a minute. Single people are, are financially better off than married people. That's, that's actually false. One, one study indicated that individuals who remained continuously married had a 75% more wealth at retirement. Another study showed that married men earned 10 to 40% more than single men with similar education and job histories. Last one. Single people are generally happier than married people. False. That's, that's true. Uh, I mean, that's false. <laughs> Various surveys have indicated that the number of married people who say they are very happy in their marriage is consistently high, about 61-62% over the last decade. And here's an interesting factoid about that. That is that uh, those uh, in the longitudinal studies, that is, that is longer studies, uh, where people were surveyed over a period of years. Those couples, uh, two-thirds of those couples who said they were unhappy at one point in time, when they were surveyed again within five years, said that they were now happy in their relationship if, in fact, they'd stayed together and not divorced. So that, that's, an, that's an interesting piece. Research shows that people who are married consistently show much higher degrees of, of satisfaction with their lives than those who are single divorced, or living with a partner. And finally, children who grow up in married two-parent homes have two to three times more positive life outcomes, you know, finishing high school, not getting pregnant before you get married, um, achieving this, achieving that, uh, than those who are not in, in uh, married two-parent homes. But our culture's perspective is, our popular, the popular thinking in our culture right now is that marriage doesn't work anymore. It may be broke. It may not be viable anymore. And that was illustrated in a conversation that, uh, that Gene and I heard on the beach in Elk Rapids uh, a week or so ago. We were out on the beach and we were next to some young couples, uh, 20 some, late 20s maybe, a couple kids, not many. And uh, one of the young guys said to another young guy, hey, um, have, have you and so-and-so got married yet? And he said, no. You know, he said, every time we think about going down to the justice of the peace and and, and making, it, making it legal, he said, uh, you know, we get into a big fight about something and then, you know, we just don't want to make it uh, legal and permanently binding if, if we're not getting along anyway. So he, he concluded with, uh, 
a statement that sounded like, well, it may never happen. And, and what, that, what that said to me, what I, what I thought about that as I turned that over in my mind, what were the values that our culture approaches relationships in general and marriages in particular now, and that is that uh, they, are, they are temporary and disposable, and that uh, if it isn't working, we can throw it away, that relationships exist only to meet my needs and, and desires, in other words, to make me happy, and that my commitment to my partner is only required as long as that person makes me happy, and, and I find that person exciting. There's no expectation that a successful relationship will require any work or that a partner is expected to stick around through hardship and, and difficulty. In fact, either partner is free to end the relationship at any time if they have a, a better offer. That is, someone who's more exciting or attractive or makes me happier than my current partner. And, and, and those values, that understanding of relationships is what leads to the, the serial relationships that we see. People go through this cycle of infatuation and, and uh, disillusionment, and then uh, they reject that person. They think, well, I made a bad pick, so I'm going to move on to somebody else. And, uh, and they, they find someone else and just repeat the same cycle all over again because they're depending on their, their feelings, depending on that feeling of happiness and that person to, to generate that for them. Well, just when you thought you'd heard everything. Um, Anderson Cooper recently reported a, about a woman who married herself to find happiness. <laughs> Nadine Schweigert, a 36-year-old North Dakota woman, married herself in a commitment ceremony. Fr friends and family in attendance were encouraged to blow kisses to the world, unquote, after she exchanged rings with her inner groom. Schweigert said that she takes herself on dates to treat herself and invest in this relationship. She got the idea for marrying herself from a friend after she says she got tired of waiting for someone to come along to make me happy. You know, I'm, I'm uh, just thinking about what Dr. Phil would say. Well, how's that, how's that working for you, you know? We all need to understand that another person can't ultimately make us happy. Genuine happiness, the kinds of joy and peace and fulfillment that we're looking for in life comes from our relationship with God. And God may use our spouse to, to help us get there, but it comes from our relationship with God. One final cultural artifact, uh, relationship upgrade. Those of you who understand about Facebook will, will, will know what this means. Uh, others can ask someone around you under 18. A friend I was talking with last week said that she saw a posting from a young woman on Facebook that had, re had upgraded her relationship to reflect that she now had a closet at her boyfriend's. And uh, uh, we, as we talked about that, we, we reflected on the fact that, you know, the package used to include a whole house <laughs> and, a, and a lifetime commitment. And, and now, it's, now it's just a closet, uh, apparently. And my friend made the observation that this young woman selling herself for a closet, selling herself for a closet. And, and again, the culture's view is that my commitment to you lasts only as long as you meet my needs and no longer. In contrast, uh, the way God looks at commitment, here's a story from uh, Dr. Richard Seltzer. He says in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Arts of Surgery, he says, 
he was paying a post-operative visit to a couple in a hospital, the wife of whom he just, despite his best efforts, left disfigured for life. He writes this, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of her facial nerve, the one to the muscles in her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As a surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself? He with the wry mouth, who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close. I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show, their, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. You see... In our culture, marriage is all about my needs. It's based on my feelings. And you're okay as long as my feelings don't change. But from God's perspective, marriage is about a long-term commitment. My love for you is forever. And it's unaffected by circumstances. My commitment to you is for life. Well, whose idea was marriage anyway? Well, let's look in the owner's manual. In uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 24, uh, we have an account of the first wedding that ever took place. God presided over it. Uh, Genesis 2, verses 18 through, through 24, and it's going to be on the screen as well. In verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now some of you ladies are already thinking, God may have been the first one to figure out that it was not good for men to, to be alone, but a lot of us since then have, have known that it's not good for men to be without adult supervision, right? Yeah, well, God noticed it first. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to all the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
So it was God's idea, and God immediately recognized two things. First of all, he recognized that it, it was not good that man should be what? Alone. It was not good that man should be alone. The Hebrew word there means by himself. And, and notice uh, that if you're familiar with that account of creation, this was the first thing in all of creation that God said was not good. Everything else was good. But he recognized that man was alone and he said, this won't do. This, this is not good. Man is incomplete. The other thing that God recognized is that no living creature that he had created and that Adam had named was suitable or corresponding to, the Hebrew word means, one that would complement Adam. And, the, and the, the connotation of the Hebrew word there is opposites but alike, opposites but corresponding to, like pieces of a puzzle that fit together, that, that there was no uh, beast out of the thousands that Adam had named, there was not one that corresponded to him and, and fit him like a puzzle piece. And in verses uh, 18 and 20 here, that, that word helper too, uh, he, sa he says uh, that he had fashioned, or the Hebrew word means built, the, the woman out of, out of Adam's rib. Uh, but the word helper there uh, is not to diminish that role. It's not, a, it's not a, an assistant concerned with trivial things. The Hebrew word there for helper implies a powerful partner without whom the mission could not be accomplished. A person who comes alongside the man makes him complete in a way that, that allows them both to accomplish whatever God has for them. So God uh, built or fashioned the first woman out of Adam's rib in verse 22, and we see that God brings her to the man. And I like to picture it like a father walking his daughter down the aisle at a wedding ceremony, bringing her to Adam. And, and what does Adam say about that? I, I like the way the message uh, flavors it in the uh, message translation in, uh, in verse 23 where, where it says, the man said, finally, exclamation point, exclamation point. You can imagine after all these, this parade of uh, beasts that he's named, finally God brings him the woman. Finally, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, name her woman, for she was made from man. Translation, hey, good looking, what are you doing Saturday night? He liked what he saw when God brought him the woman. And then God pronounced the man and wife in, in verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's quoted again and again. In Matthew 19, Jesus used that, that same uh, verse to uh, quote to the Pharisees, uh, to, to uh, push them back on the issue of divorce. It's also quoted in the passage that we'll read in Ephesians 5 in just a moment. So, so God pronounced the man and, man and wife, and notice that uh, God designed, this is an important point, notice that God designed them not to be the same, but to be different. Uh, that was intentional. Uh, God designed men and women to complement each other, not just physically, those differences are obvious, but uh, physically and intellectually and emotionally and spiritually Women are not the same as men. We complement each other. And, and we're different, and that is essential and intentional for a marriage to function in the way that, that God intended. If our culture, you notice that God, in, in, uh, where he created the man and the woman and, and he instituted the first marriage, he, he didn't allow for any other combinations. He didn't say, well, if you don't think this is a good idea, if you want to try something different, it's okay. No, 
He, he designed men and women deliberately to fit together to complement each other. That's why he didn't allow for any other combinations. And, and when our culture proposes other combinations, that, that is a slippery slope that will always end badly. It's not God's design. So it is God's idea. He takes it seriously. In fact, marriage is serious business to God. In, uh, in the, the Old Testament book, Malachi is one instance where Malachi delivers God's perspective on marriage to the people of his day. They were concerned because they, they said, God's not hearing us. He's not responding to our sacrifices. What's going on? And, uh, and God says this, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, he's about to tell them why not. He says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in, your, in, in their union? In other words, it's not just a two-way covenant, it's a three-way covenant. God is involved in a marriage as well. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Uh, that's an expression meaning that he sets himself up for a fall, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. And Peter makes the same point in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3, 7, where he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. The weaker vessel there refers to uh, the fact that in general, in general terms, women are less physically powerful than their mates since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. If, if, uh, men, if we dishonor our wives, if we're faithless with our wives, uh, we will have trouble in our relationship with God. Uh, God won't hear our prayers and our relationship with him will be disrupted. God will come to their defense and it will not end well for us. Well, what's God's design for the way a marriage should work? Again, back to the owner's manual. We'll go to Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, uh, verses uh, 18 through 33, in, in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul, Paul is really talking here about walking in the Spirit. What life should look like. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're walking in the Spirit, and uh, this is the way we're going to be living. And, and then he gets more specific, and he, he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. But I wanted you to see it's within that context of walking in the Spirit. He's talking to believers in Jesus Christ here who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. He says, beginning in verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of, of Christ. In other words, in the body of Christ, we ought to be putting everybody else's interests ahead of our own. That kind of humility. And, uh, and service to other people. And, and now specifically to wives and husbands. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. But the church is subject to Christ. So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having 
cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, the bride of Christ, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. You see, our marriage relationships are supposed to be a picture, a visual representation, a testimony as to the, the, uh, the way that Christ relates to the church and loves the church. For we are members of, of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Again, he's comparing the marriage relationship. He said it's a picture, it's a mystery that helps to explain our relationship with Christ. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So what is that? Again, Paul is writing to believers here who are indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that is, I want to make that point because God's design for marriage is such that it cannot be lived out well apart from uh, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are times when uh, we don't feel especially uh, loving, for example, uh, but we need to act in love and the Holy Spirit uh, can love our partner through us. A context within the church is of mutual subjection, of putting the other's interests ahead of ourselves. And having said that, though, God does uh, lay out an order of things. He, he says there is an order in human relationships and our relationship with him. Just as Christ is head of the church, he says the husband is the head of the wife in the family situation, just as Christ is head of the church. What does that concept of headship mean? Well, it means this, that we as men are accountable for God, accountable before God for the leadership of our families. And he's given, both the, he's given us both the authority and the responsibility for that as, as men. Notice in Genesis 3, if you're familiar with that story, after Adam and Eve were tempted, and uh, they succumbed to that temptation, and they're trying to hide out in the garden, like you can hide from God, right? And, and they're hiding out in the garden, and they, they, it says, Scripture says, they hear the noise of God walking in the garden, looking for them, because they usually walk together with God in the evenings. And, and he's, he's come looking for them. And, uh, and God calls out while they're hiding. And who does he call to? Which one? Adam. He calls to Adam, doesn't he? That's significant. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He knew where he was. It was just a way of starting the conversation. He, he knew where he was. Much is made of the fact that Eve was deceived and Eve was tempted and Eve sinned first. But it happened because Adam failed in his primary responsibility as a spiritual leader. He had the obligation to protect his wife from the intruder who came into the garden and he had a, a responsibility when she was deceived to correct her and say, wait a minute, remember what God said? We're not to eat of that tree. And both of them failed. You've you got to wonder, where was he when all this was going on? Watching football or what? But all of mankind has suffered as a result, as we know. He failed in, in his primary responsibility. In the same way, guys, uh, God has called us in our homes to be the spiritual leaders in our homes and families. And, and many of our marriages and families suffer 
because we fail to lead and protect and teach and correct in the way that God has intended. And he holds us accountable for that. We need to, to step up. So what do our individual uh, roles look like in the marriage relationship? Well, I, I like the flavor of the, the message paraphrase again here, where it says in verses 22 through 25, Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife in the way that uh, Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. It's a different leadership model, isn't it, than what we see in the world. It's not domineering, it's, it's leadership through servanthood and love. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. Talk about a, a high bar, a high standard, right? It's a huge challenge loving our wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And I want you to notice something about that command. Um, in our culture, love is a feeling. God doesn't command us to a feeling. He, says, he doesn't say, I want you to feel loving toward your spouse. No, he says, I want you to demonstrate your love toward your spouse in action. Love is about action here. To act in a way that demonstrates our, our love for our wives. And that is a major difference from the way culture looks at love. It isn't at all about our feelings. What does it mean in a practical way? Well, it means putting our wives first in the way we use our time, our money, our attention, and our affection. I knew a, a guy a few years ago who, uh, he and his wife and uh, daughter lived in a, in a dump of a place. It was a little cinder block cracker box. And um, she, the, the wife, uh, scraped to find money to, to uh, pay the bills, didn't have money for groceries, didn't have money for... Um, the utility bills, because he didn't share any income with her. And uh, he was so proud of the fact. He showed me his expensive uh, hunting rifles and all kinds of man gear. And he made much of the fact that he was a very religious guy and was into some obscure messianic doctrine of some kind. Uh, but I'll tell you what, his, his wife and his daughter were alienated and embittered. He, he didn't even, he wouldn't even uh, buy them a birthday gift or a Christmas gift, said he didn't believe in it. Uh, but he bought plenty of stuff for himself. He was failing in his primary responsibility as a husband and father. He, he was in sin. Sometimes, it's our, sometimes the issue is our time, the focus our, of our attention or our affection. Guys, if you and I are workaholics, if we're spending an inordinate amount of time playing golf, watching TV, whatever it is that we pursue, at the expense of our wives' need to communicate, and to build a relationship with us, then we're not loving our wives in the way that God intended, and we need to change that. If your affections are focused somewhere other than your wife, if they're focused on a female co-worker in the workplace, as often happens, or as is increasingly common, directing your affections at anonymous images on the Internet, you're not loving your wife within your marriage relationship 
in the way that God intends, and you need to change that. Here's a question for you. Do you understand what your wife's needs are? And are you putting them ahead of your own? Not just, well, I'll do for her if she does for me. No. Are you putting her needs ahead of your own in an unconditional way? That's the standard that Christ set for us. Are you acting as a spiritual leader in your home? Are you setting an example for your wife and the kids in the way you walk with God and, and in the way that you're leading them into a day-to-day -day relationship with Jesus Christ, setting boundaries, protecting them from the destructive influences that come in, not just through the door, but sometimes through the cable, right? If you're not, then, then we're not doing the job that God has intended for us and for which he will hold us accountable. Wives, your role, according to Ephesians 5 here, is to submit, to support, to encourage, and respect. The Greek word for submission or, or subjection is, it doesn't have anything to do with servitude. It has to do with, a, the Greek word is a role, defines a role relationship in a social structure like a family. It means to voluntarily uh, submit in a way that honors God. Voluntarily submit to a husband in a way that honors God. This is what submission does not mean. It does not mean that women should submit to men in general. It's intended for a husband and wife within a marriage relationship. It does not mean that women are somehow of less worth or less than co-equals before God. Paul makes that clear that that's not the case. The gospel levels the playing field. Jew, Gentile, slave and free, male and female, they're all equal before God in the light of the gospel. It does not mean that wives should keep silent and do whatever their husbands say, even if it's wrong. No, uh, respecting means respectfully confronting when husbands are wrong, when they're abusive, when they're in sin, and respectfully encouraging to live up to this, the uh, leadership role that God has for them as spiritual leaders in their home. And this passage and others have been used wrongly over the decades, over the centuries, to repress and intimidate women inside families and inside churches, and that is both wrong and it's unscriptural. And ironically, Paul's words here actually were revolutionary in that first century time. They revolutionized the role of women. They liberated women and elevated the role of, of women in society at the time beyond what anybody could have imagined. A couple of first century historians, Josephus and Philo, wrote on uh, first century Jewish attitudes toward women. They evidenced the low regard that women were held in in, in the first century. And they say this, For saith the scripture, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things. There is no place in the Old Testament that says that. In reality, there is no such verse anywhere in the Old Testament. Let her therefore be obedient to him, not so that he should abuse her, but that she may acknowledge her duty to her husband, for God has given the authority to the husband. And then uh, Philo responds as well. He says, Wives must be in servitude to their husbands, a servitude not imposed by violent treatment, but by promoting, promoting obedience in all things. Things were pretty grim for first century uh, women, and so Paul's command for their husbands to, lie, to, to love them like they love themselves, that, that was uh, an incredible, it was revolutionary. It, it was like the Emancipation Proclamation. It rocked the first century world. It made Christians distinctive in, in that society. 
Submitting means to acknowledge the role that God has given husbands in the home as heads of our family, spiritual leaders in our home, to support and encourage men in that regard. Wives, here's a word to you. One of your most important roles is as an encourager of your husband. I'm aware that many of you work outside the home as well, and so you're subjected to the same kinds of negative influences you can find in the world. But um, the, the world can tear a man down can discourage us and depress us and crush us from day to day because of all the things we have to deal with, can make us feel like everyone is against us. And what we need many times more than anything else is, is for a wife, the, the one who loves us most, to love us and to believe in us so that no matter how dark the circumstances, uh, the one that uh, we love most is the one who believes most in us and, and uh, lifts us up. And that's one of the gifts from God that I have in my wife. Jean's always been a great encourager to me, even in the darkest of times over the, over the years. And it means speaking, it means, wives, it means speaking to your husbands and about your husbands in, in a way that communicates respect. I got a question. Here's a hard question for you. Do you have a critical spirit in your interactions with your husband? Do you criticize every suggestion or idea? If, if so, don't be surprised if communication suffers in your relationships because what we as men do, if you speak to us in a way that habitually makes us feel disrespected, we'll, we'll retire into our cave, wherever that is, and communication will come to a, a screeching halt. So the summary of God's commands to husbands and wives is in verse 33. It's all there in a nutshell. He says, uh, Paul says in 5.33, However, each of you must also love his wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So it boils down to love and respect. You see, love and respect, the way God has designed the marriage relationship, love and respect complement each other. Perhaps you know this already, but a guy named uh, Emerson Egrich and his wife, Sarah, have, uh, have put together a whole ministry to, to couples around that concept, the love and respect ministry, it's called. He did some, some research on uh, how men and women relate. He asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in conflict with your spouse or a significant other, do you feel unloved or unrespected in that moment? 83% of the men said they felt disrespected. 72% of the women said they felt unloved. He derived from that a couple principles. Number one is that the primary need for a husband in a marriage relationship is to be respected. The primary need for a wife within a marriage relationship is to be loved. And furthermore, when a husband demonstrates the way God has engineered us in those relationships, when a husband demonstrates that unconditional, sacrificial love for his wife, it generates in her respect for him. And, and when, on the other hand, a wife demonstrates respect for her husband, it generates in him that unconditional, sacrificial love for her. And that's the way our relationship is supposed to operate. I, again, it's not a feeling. We don't have to feel respectful or feel loving. But what we're called to do, what we're commanded to do in those marriage relationships is, is act in ways that are loving and respectful. Even if we don't feel like it at that particular moment, the Holy Spirit can empower us to do that. And God will over, will over time then manifest those attributes in, in our relationship as it, as it grows, as we become closer together. You know, um, I used to teach police supervisors all over the state. 
I used to run first-line supervision courses and teach them how to uh, be first-line supervisors. Had a lot of new sergeants in my classes. Invariably, a young sergeant would come up to me on the break and would almost whisper to me, hey, look, you know, I've got a crew of uh, older people, usually guys, some women as well, but um, I've got a crew of older guys I'm trying to supervise. How can I make them respect me? I would say, invariably, I would say the same thing. You can't make people respect you. What you can do is become the kind of a sergeant that they will choose to respect. And, and men, I, I, would, I would say the same thing to you. If you ask me, how can I make my wife respect me? You can't make your wife respect you. What you can become is the kind of a husband that she will choose to respect. You can love her sacrificially. You can put her first. You can love her unconditionally. And she will return to you that respect that, that you desire as well. Some practical ways to make marriage work. I mentioned earlier that marriage is one tool that God uses in our spiritual formation to chip the rough corners off us and, uh, and mold us into the image of Christ. He uses our partner for that. And successful marriages require deliberate effort and the willingness to, to listen and to confront and not just put up with the status quo. Uh, but to love each other in, in that way. Otherwise, marriages stagnate and die. We have to be, they're, they're a relationship. And, and uh, just like any other relationship, if you don't cultivate it, pay attention to it, it stagnates and, died, and dies. Mark and uh, Grace Driscoll in the book Real Marriage, uh, which I've included in your, in your reading list, uh, try to get on that reading list, will you? They, uh, indicate the, the critical importance of friendship in marriage success. They say this, husbands and wives who want their marriages to be enduring and endearing must be friends. You think it can't be this simple, right? <coughs> Sociologist John Gottman observes that the determining factor in whether wives feel satisfied in their marriage is by 70% the quality of the couple's friendship. For men, the determining factor by 70% the quality of the couple's friendship. So men and women come from the same planet after all. Happy marriages are based on a deep friendship. By this I mean a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other intimately. They're well versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality quirks, hopes and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and they express this fondness not just in the big ways but in little ways, day in and, and day out. Friendship fuels the flames of romance because it offers the best protection against feeling adversarial toward your spouse. If your marriage relationship is languishing, you've been married a long time or a short time, if your marriage relationship is languishing, it's probably from neglect and inattention. Start improving it by making time for friendship with your spouse. Some practical ways to do that. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book some years ago called uh, Love Languages, perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you've read it, been through a study on it, called The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. I put it in your, on your uh, list of resources as well. But what he says is that, is that uh, we all have different love languages and that if we want to maintain a loving relationship with our spouse, we have to discover what language they like to be communicated with in, uh, in with and, and that we have to use the language that matters most from their perspective. Some of those love languages are, are words of affirmation. That is, words of encouragement. When is the last time you thanked your spouse 
or acknowledged uh, who they are and what they do for you from day to day. Words of encouragement for who they are and what they do. And, and here's it. Fellas, if uh, your anniversary arrives, first of all, you need to remember that. And, and secondly, if your anniversary arrives and, and you're going you're gonna to give your wife a card or something else, uh, but if there's a card involved, don't just write, Love Bill. Come on. And that, that's an opportunity to make a statement. It's an opportunity. It's one of those times where you can mark the occasion by letting your wife, in writing, know just how important she is to you and what a difference you've made, she's made in your life. And, and she will cherish that expression of your love. Uh, quality time. Do any of you have any meaningful friendships that are very important to you, uh, that are best friends that you don't spend any time in? Of course not. You, you can't maintain a, re, a friendship without cultivating it and spending some time. So we've got to be deliberate about setting aside time to spend time with our, our spouse to, to uh, cultivate that friendship, that relationship. Receiving gifts. Know what your spouse appreciates and give gifts even when you're not expected to and especially when you're not expected to. They don't have to be, they don't have to be um, expensive. But the, the symbol is more important than the, the cost. Acts of service. Serve each other, especially when you're not expected to. Uh, when one is down, when one is overwhelmed, the other one can, can, can lift up their partner. Um, men, open doors. Open doors. You say, well, nobody does that anymore. That's exactly my point. Nobody does that anymore. And if you do that for your wife, if you open her car door, you open the door before you go into the restaurant, uh, other people will notice that. You'll be making a statement that you're honoring your wife. Is that a little embarrassing? You'll get over it. it it's, important. it's important to your wife. It honors her. Do that. I've, I've uh, traveled with, um, you know, every once in a while I get in a car with, with another woman. I open their door and they say, well, thank you. That's so unusual. Uh, you know, no, nobody else does that for me. That seems strange to me that nobody else does that. My dad did that. Uh, so it, it's just a small way, but those acts of service are, are important. Physical touch. You know, we all respond to touch. A simple arm around the shoulder, a neck rub, a hug. Uh, communicate love to your partner without saying a, a word. I want to close this morning with an unlikely story of uh, friendship and, and love. Most of us know about Martin Luther. Are, are you familiar with Martin Luther and who he was? He was a leader of the Protestant Reformation. He lived, just so you can bracket him in history, Martin Luther lived from 1483 to 1546 and in Germany, and he was a contemporary of the printing press of Michelangelo, of da Vinci, of uh, John Calvin, of Copernicus, Henry VIII, does any of that ring a bell? Christopher Columbus, same, same era that Luther lived in. And uh, he was the leader of the Protestant Reformation, but... Um, hardly anybody knows uh, the amazing story about how he met and married his wife, Catherine von Bora. You see, Luther was a renegade monk. And once uh, God had revealed to him, he had this epiphany, this revelation about how we were saved by grace and that righteousness came through Christ by faith and that it didn't have anything to do with religious rituals or, or our moral performance. And, and that made him kind of an outlaw in his day. And so he began taking on the church in, of his day on matters of doctrine. One of the matters of doctrine that he took on the church with 
had to do with uh, what he called the unscriptural, celibate, monastic lifestyle of monks and nuns. And he summarized his views in a pamphlet, and then he circulated that. Talk about an unpopular guy. Among those who read that pamphlet by that renegade monk were 12 teenage nuns in a Benedictine convent who'd been sent there from childhood without their consent. And they longed to be like other women, to, to have families and husbands and to live a normal life. But they were prevented from leaving this convent. So Luther, being the, the outlaw that he was, he put together a little operation to rescue them. He actually put uh, 12 empty fish barrels in a, in a wagon. He drove that wagon into that convent on uh, early morning hours of one Easter and uh, put those 12 nuns who wanted to escape in those fish barrels and drove them out of that convent, brought them back over to the Augustinian monastery. And then he returned some of them to their families and, and others he found husbands for. And uh, all were eventually married except for one named Catherine. And uh, Catherine von Bora uh, couldn't find a husband for her. And her family would not take her back. They were devout Catholics at the time, and uh, her mother had died when she was young, so they, there was no place for her in her family. They rejected her. And so uh, uh, Catherine von Bora, though, was a, an assertive woman. She was a bold woman, and she said, Dr. Luther, if uh, you can find no husband for me, then you need to step up and marry me yourself. Luther never envisioned himself getting married. And in, in fact, he, for a number of reasons, including the fact that, that he expected to be sentenced to death as a heretic. And, uh, and he didn't find Catherine von Bora uh, attractive. And in fact, he was kind of repelled by her because she was bold and assertive. She spoke her own mind. And uh, he didn't particularly like her. So, so he, in, but... Uh, to be fair, he continued to pray and ask God what his will was in, in this situation. And finally, over time, he became convinced. He concluded that uh, God wanted him to marry Catherine von Bora. And, and this is a quote. He said, if only to spite the devil. <laughs> what a romantic, Martin. They were married in the backwoods of rural Germany on June 13, 1525, and as you might expect, the marriage of a former, a former nun and a former monk was a public scandal, and they took a lot of public criticism over that. In fact, uh, some suggested that one of their offspring would be the Antichrist, and that the marriage didn't begin well in the sense that, you know, neither one of them had been around members of the opposite sex for years. They didn't quite know how to act. And so it was, very, it was very awkward. There was no love or attraction or any kind of a courtship. And uh, they didn't get along well initially because they were both very strong personalities. And so their, their temperaments clashed continually. What they did share was this. They, they shared a, a commitment to the principles of the Bible and service to God. They lived in great poverty in Martin's old 40-room monastery and Catherine set to work turning that former bachelor pad into a home. She threw out a straw bed that Martin had had for years and began making the other improvements she needed to, to do to turn it into a home. She was uh, an incredibly hard worker. She raised their, what came to be six children. There must have been some romance somewhere, huh? <laughs> what came to be six children, she raised them while she managed their farm and cattle, sold linen, brewed beer because it was Germany, and uh, helped edit Martin's writings and entertain, entertain their guests. Sometimes they had 
a hundred people around the table for, for dinner. They spent their evenings uh, entertaining Martin, entertaining their kids with uh, music and taught them from the Bible. And she had a keen theological mind and participated with Martin and his colleagues in theological debates about uh, doctrine. And she nursed him through many ailments he had as well. He, he was sick often. He, he also went through deep bouts of depression. And uh, on one occasion, she dressed up in, a, in black in a grieving widow's mourning attire. She met him at the door when he came home from work. She said, are you going to a funeral? She said, no, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in the morning. He laughed and he quickly recovered. They shared, they shared a great sense of humor. Although their relationship began very awkwardly without any of the superficial aspects that our culture would say would, would lead to success, as they lived together, a deep friendship developed that blossomed into a passionate love and a lasting love. He described her as affectionately as Lord Katie, as my true love, as my sweetheart, and a gift from God. Martin Luther died after preaching his final sermon at age 62. He was away from his wife at the time, but he said in his will, My Catherine has always been a gentle, pious, and faithful wife to me. She's loved me dearly. You see, before Martin Luther, needed, before Martin Luther knew he needed a wife, God had provided the wife that he needed. And their unlikely match became a model for us of what a marriage can be if it's based on friendship and long-term commitment and a desire to serve God over everything else. Let's pray, shall we? Your Father, I thank you for the example of Martin and Katie uh, all these years ago. And I thank you for the way that you orchestrated that relationship to provide an example for us hundreds of years later. And I pray, Lord, that you will, uh, by your Holy Spirit's power, that you would be active and powerful in, in every relationship that's represented here, uh, that they would be godly relationships, that we as husbands would love our wives in the way that Christ loved the church, that, that we as wives would come alongside as, as, uh, as helpers and partners in that relationship to accomplish God's purposes for, that, for, for each family. And I, and I pray finally that, that our families, our marriages would be a testimony to the world of what uh, Christ's love is for us and for the church. And we ask all these things, Lord, in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us. Amen.